The great French gastronome Briat Savarin once said, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. I'm Jamie Schler. Welcome to Stir Crazy, where I'll be talking food with the most intriguing people who you least expect to talk about food. Today's guest, once described by the Washington Post as a dazzling virtuoso, was appointed assistant principal cellist of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra in the fall of 2013. And if I've calculated correctly, he was just 24 years old. He also serves as cellist for the New Orleans-based chamber ensemble Lyrica Baroque. He began playing the cello before he was five years old and eventually came to play in or with some of the world's leading orchestras, opera houses, and music festivals around the world. He has also earned the nickname The Gourmet Cellist since being chief guest host on The Food Show on New Orleans' WWL Radio. He also creates and hosts special events in collaboration with New Orleans' best restaurants, such as the famed Commander's Palace, to bring out the parallels between food and music. He is also the host of the podcast Talking Beats, and I'm really pleased to have Daniel Lelchuk here with me today. Welcome to my kitchen, and thanks for having me in yours. It's great to be here. Great to see you, Jamie. Thank you so much. Tell me about your kitchen. That's a fantastic kitchen. Are you at your house in New Orleans? I am in New Hampshire right now, and I'm overlooking a lake, and I see the loons out there, and it's a nice, typical New England gray summer day. Perfect for being in the kitchen with you. And just for the listeners, if you want to see some images of his... See, you're looking loons, and I'm getting loonies, because I have all the youths that, like, pass on their motos out the window. Follow Daniel on Instagram. I think it's Daniel.Lelchuk. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Right. And you'll see some great pictures of his, I guess, your parents' home in New Hampshire, right? This is actually a, a family lake house. It's near where I grew up, and my brother comes in from California in the summers, and I come in from New Orleans or from wherever I'm playing concerts, and uh, my folks are both very nearby, and so it's just a special time to be here. We do lots of cooking and uh, lots of uh, sort of activities. I, of course, record podcasts and practice a cello around here, so it's a nice idyllic setting, although does get cold and rainy, you know, a lot of 50-degree days pouring rain, but that's okay. Oh, that's okay. Especially after, if you come from New Orleans, it's boiling hot in the summer. <laughs> way too hot, way too hot, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Floridian, so I know that heat, that damp heat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I got to know you actually thanks to my first podcast guest, Malcolm Nance, because I contacted him and said, what do you think about being on a food podcast? And he said, well, I was on a classical music podcast, so I'm up for anything. <laughs> and so he told me about Talking Beats, and I pulled it up and I found the episode with him, which was great fun, and listened to it a few times. Of course, I had to research him. And then I got hooked on your podcast. And I'm always kind of glad that I thought of my concept for this podcast of talking about food with non-food professionals so no one would think I copied your concept because that's basically what you do. <laughs> you have non-music professionals and you end up talking about music, which is a whole discussion I want to have later in the podcast. So we'll talk about that afterwards. I always cook and bake first with my guests, so we're going to dive right in and then chat while it's in the oven. Are you ready? Great. Great. I'm ready. You know, my podcasts are audio only, not video. I, I do 90% of my podcasts standing up, so I love standing. So I'm just going to keep standing here and, okay. and talking to you because I'm so used to doing work at a standing desk. The only thing I can't do standing is playing the cello. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. That, that would be hard to do. <laughs> that would be hard to do. 
<laughs> what was the movie where they, um, oh, the Woody, uh, there was a Woody Allen movie where he played cello in this high school marching band or something like yes. that? Yes. I just saw that recently. I forget what it's called. That's a great movie. That, that's a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very funny. I'm sure you were laughing hysterically. Oh, I loved it. I love any time a cello... Uh, cellos are always popping up in movies. There was that great James Bond movie where I think there's a Stradivarius. They're in Russia, and I think they use it to slide down the ski mountain or something to escape. And <laughs> <laughs> when we lived in Italy, my son's best friend, we got to know the whole family. So it was, you know, very typically Italian with all the different generations. And we rented a house out in the country for the last two years we were there from this friend's grandfather's brother. And these three elderly gentlemen uh, had a little group of houses out in the country. And Pepe was the grandfather of my son's friend. And him and his children and his grandchildren all played musical instruments. There was a viola, there was a cello, there was violin. And at that time, my younger son was playing violin. And whenever the family got together, they would all bring their instruments and they would do a little mini That's concert great. just for the family. And it was fantastic. And my son played, uh, kind of tried to play along on the violin, but... It was really, I don't know, it's very special to see that when a family does that together. All the generations. That's terrific. That's terrific. Especially in Italy where, where everybody sort of mixes the generations much more than they do in, in the States. You know, I remember when I lived in Rome in high school and I remember I was walking around and I was with my mom after we'd gone out for pizza near Campo dei Fiori and, and she said, you know, this is something you don't see in the States. You know, there, there's two-year-olds being pushed around the stroller. There's 95-year-old grandma walking with them. It's, you know, it's one it's wonderful. And you don't see that in, in the States. I think we segregate by age much more so. Yeah, and everybody lives together. I remember when we had an apartment in the center of Milan, this older couple who had the apartment on the same floor as us had one son and two twin grandsons, I think. And they were waiting for two small apartments in our building to open up and they were going to buy them. They had like claimed them and they were going to buy them so the two grandsons could move into the same building. Mm. And I think at that time their son had divorced and moved back in with them, which is... Yeah, 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 yeah. So all the family was together. But uh, yeah, this friend of my son's and their family, it was just they were always together. They had their house on the lake where they all stayed and they just gathered together at this little country house in all the time. And it was, for us, it was fantastic because my family was in the States. My husband's family was in France. We were in Italy. And so it was, we had this big adopted family that we never had yeah, at all yeah, other. Yeah. So, okay. So let's get to you. Before we get to food, I know you're crazy passionate about food, but just a little bit of background about your story. In fact, I had questions for you and then I listened to you. You had a recent episode on your podcast in which your producer was interviewing you. So I heard some of the story and I want you to tell a little bit about it here because I found it fascinating. So you started playing when you were four or five years old, but when you were two, tell this story about how you discovered sound and music. This was one of those things that 
each time I tell the story or think about it, I just marvel at how lucky I was because it just mm. left such an impression on me. Where I grew up, which is uh, near Dartmouth College, and it's called the Upper Valley, and it's sort of a little bit in Vermont, a little bit in New Hampshire, the Upper Connecticut River Valley. It's this group of towns around Dartmouth, around Hanover, New Hampshire, that's very special. There's a wonderful science museum called the Montshire Museum of Science in Norwich, Vermont, right across the river. And uh, my mom took me when I was about two and a half years old to hear a demonstration about sound waves. They had wonderful mm. things for children, you know, bring your kid and learn about sound waves or learn about light waves or whatever. And uh, for this demonstration, the museum, blessed be they that have the money to do this, uh, had hired a professional cellist to come in and demonstrate to all the kids in the audience. You see, kids, when I draw the bow across the string, you can see the string vibrating like this. You can see the sound wave literally and that's what sound is, sound is sound waves. And the nice thing about a stringed instrument, unlike a wind instrument uh, or a voice, is that you can literally see the string moving and then you hear the sound. Now afterwards, uh, the cellist invited all the little kids in the audience to come up and feel the top of the cello, meaning put your hand on it like this, as she drew the bow. So you could literally feel the vibrations traveling through every part of your hand hmm. and your wrist and around the elbow and up into the shoulder and into the back, and eventually you just feel it inside you, right, sort of at your core. And uh, it's, it's still something that I, I do sometimes, and I feel it traveling up. And I remember on the car ride back with my mom back out here to Canaan, New Hampshire, I said, you know, I really need to play the cello. And, you know, both my parents are, are big, big music fans and know a huge amount. My mom was very musical. My dad, a big musical lover, very passionate. And uh, so, okay, but a little hard to find a teacher in rural New Hampshire, <laughs> And so, uh, but luckily, about two years later, a wonderful woman we heard had moved up to uh, about 45 minutes away from New York and uh, was starting a studio in New Hampshire. So it just worked out perfectly. But for those two years, the, the desire to play the cello didn't go away. It only increased. And certainly, once I started, which was about four and a half years old, the want to get better and to keep playing the cello only increased as well. It wasn't like, oh, it's something the kid will pick up and maybe two months later he'll pick up an oboe and two months later a baseball and something. It was really all the other things I was doing as a kid were important, but the cello occupied a different place for me, and it, obviously it still so, does. So you discovered it when you were about two and a half. When did yeah. you finally get to play the cello? How many years later? Well, two years later, not till I was about four and a half, <laughs> is when I, when so, I held it. Well. Yeah. Right. So what's fascinating is that for a kid that age, a toddler who, I mean, you know, don't even know how their minds work, that you held on to that for two years, that you were so, uh, that you, it stuck with you. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, we went to visit some dear friends, dear family friends when I was about three, so three and a half, so call it about a year later, in Germany, in Ulm. And she was an amateur cellist. She's a literary editor and translator, but she was an amateur cellist. And so she had a cello there. So there's a picture of me at about three three and a half years old, sitting, and it was a big full-size cello, sitting on this chair, and I'm tiny, holding this enormous, huge cello, like this, it's like this big, it looks like a monster cello, but, so that was the first time I actually held it, and, and she has a beautiful old cello that I remember just feeling, you, there's a physicality of the left and the right hand, and not that I knew how to play it all, but I just remember the feeling of the cello in both hands and thinking, wow, this is pretty great. Now, of course, when I started, it was on a much smaller instrument that was properly suited to the height <laughs> of a five-year-old or four-year-old. <laughs> oh, yeah, those little teeny... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they look like toys, yeah. 
But do they get the same, they don't get the same range of sound. Well, they don't get a, a particularly good quality of sound, but the range is exactly the same. So the C string and the G, D, and A, those are the strings of a cello, are the same exact range and pitches hmm. of an eighth size that they are on a full size. So you can actually play the same repertoire the same way. I can pick up a tiny cello today and play it. Now, the funny thing is it would be kind of out of tune because they're built for these little hands. <laughs> and so if you put a full-size hand on that fingerboard, you have to squinch everything mm. together. Because for people who don't know, on a string instrument, a bowed string instrument, meaning a viola, violin, cello, or bass, there's no fret. So uh, the spacing changes as you go up and down the fingerboard. Oh. So if you want to play, not to get too technical, but I'll just say <laughs> an interval is the space between notes. So let's say you want to play uh, a fourth. Okay, so going a few notes apart is very different here than it would be here, higher up on the instrument. So it's always changing. As your hand grows with the instrument, the instrument gets bigger, but then it all has become a little more stretched out because the fingerboard, which is that long black piece of wood on it, exactly, that gets longer, obviously, as the instrument gets bigger, Mm -hmm. and your hand gets... So ideally, it all (laughs) sort of grows together at the same time. (laughs) Well, but there's also the risk that people's hands aren't going to grow. Well, I guess most people's hands grow... (laughs) in proportion, but I mean, I guess you could have a hand that's too small for the cello. Exactly. And, and, and then you <laughs> learn how to extend. And, and in any case, you learn how to extend and how to stretch. It can be very useful. If you overdo it, it can be dangerous. The great composer Robert Schumann, mm. uh, whose music we love and play all the time, obviously, he had invented a device to stretch his hands so he could have a bigger reach on the piano. And he had basically <gasps> these metal screws that like this, and he ended up completely ruining his hand. He, I mean, I mean, in those days, I guess you thought maybe you could just do it. Obviously, he was wrong because he couldn't play piano anymore after that. But it was basically like, you know, something you'd screw and stretch, leave it there for 10 minutes or something. Not a good idea, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try this at home. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I've never heard of that. Okay, so I want to get to food. But you talk about your parents. Things that I've picked up about you from various podcasts is that your brother also played some musical instruments obviously your mom. So there was a lot of music. Your parents kept you listening to music and experiencing music. But I also know that you moved around. I heard you say that your parents moved to Israel when you were very small. So basically, your parents raised just you and your brother, right? There's just two of you with music, with art, with travel. How did this impact you and turn you into the adult you are now. Having a diverse worldview and having lots of friends from all over the world was always normal for me. Every time we'd travel, we'd go stay with friends. We wouldn't stay in a hotel. We'd all, if we go to Berlin, we'd stay with friends. We'd go to Umbria, we'd stay with friends. We'd go to Israel, we have tons of friends there too. So that was just normal to me. I grew up thinking that everybody had close family friends all over the world. And <laughs> it's a wonderful thing for a kid to be exposed to not just music in the home, but also foreign culture. Mm. And I think both my folks have always felt very much, first of all, work is what brought them around, especially my mom. But they've always felt that foreign culture and learning about foreign culture, foreign language is so important, especially for Americans. As as we know, most Mm -hmm. Americans only speak English for example, which is fine, but I've always had a knack for language. I I speak a number of foreign languages rather well, and I always think that communicating in a foreign language is just so paramount. Even if you're horrible at foreign languages, if you learn five words, let's say you're going to Germany, all you can learn is please, thank you, coffee, and two other things. It enriches your experience so much. And 
I happen not to be horrible with foreign languages, so I do more. But every mm. time I'm in Germany or Austria, I rehearse in German. You know, when I'm with Italian colleagues, I rehearse in Italian. Uh, I think it's about respect and understanding. And um, and so I think, you know, I went to kindergarten in Jerusalem. I spent part of high school in uh, Rome. My brother and my dad were in Hungary mm. when my brother went to high school. So I was visiting Budapest a lot then. All these places. Mm. And there's nothing better than having friends from other places, in my opinion. There's, there's just nothing, there's nothing like it. I love my friends in New Hampshire, right down the street. Absolutely, as well as anybody else. But I think there's no better way of getting acquainted with the world, and there's certainly no better way of understanding that we all are in this together uh, than by mm -hmm. having friends from from all over. And so I'm so glad that was part of my childhood. I'm so glad it wasn't. Let's go to Cancun and stay at a resort for four days. I mean, no offense to Cancun, <laughs> but it doesn't sound <laughs> as interesting to me <laughs> personally. No, because you see the similarities between people, and you see the differences between people. You pick up the subtleties in different cultures and you learn them, which actually goes to my next series of questions about food. So your parents offered you this experience, travel, cultures, music, art, I'm assuming. Did your love of food come from them as well? Did they introduce you to all these cultures, all these different foods? Absolutely. I remember growing up, we had these, well, we, meaning my mom, tended <laughs> these huge vegetable gardens in the back. And oh. I was talking with Mark Bittman on my podcast recently, and we were talking about just the advantage that you get when you grow up being able to taste a carrot right out of the ground. Mm. What What is that flavor like? And for me, that was normal because these vegetable gardens grew every thing, you know, carrots and tomatoes and lettuces and all kinds of different green beans and whatever. And so I think there's something to be said when you have something fresh as a kid, you, you know, wow, this isn't Lay's potato chips. There's a difference here, which I love, by the way, on occasion, no problem with Lay's. And then when I was four years old, friends of ours from this town in D.C., they were splitting their time and they had a wonderful woman named Margarita come from Italy to cook for them for the summer. And she came over to our place once to make gnocchi. And uh, we all know and love gnocchi, but we all know they can be a little, you mm. can really mess them up pretty easily. And so, so we cleared off the whole butcher block and I spent all day with Margarita making gnocchi when I was four. And you know, it was rolling, rolling the wow. perfect size. And I, I knew right then, wow, this is really, not only is, it, is the result wonderful if it comes out well, if not, then it's okay. But it's just a great <laughs> experience and a great way to know it. she didn't really speak English. And I didn't really speak, I did not speak, not really, I didn't speak Italian when I was four years old, but we had just had the best time in the kitchen together. And uh, what a mm. great experience to be with an, an, an Italian cook who's never been to New Hampshire, doesn't speak a word of English, rolling out gnocchi all day. I mean, that's, that's heaven, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd do it. <laughs> yeah. I because would do the it one right time I did try and make gnocchi, they were a disaster. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you and I will do it. When, when I come over to Chinon, we'll, we'll, we'll do it together. Oh, good. In fact, I think I even have the wooden thing to roll gnocchi on. Yes, that gives it the ridges. I yeah. think I, right, yeah. So I even have those, but I've, see, it's like you and shoe pastry. I, it's something I've been afraid to try. Gnocchi, I'm afraid to try it again. <laughs> yeah. So is your family Jewish? Did you grow up in a Jewish home? Yes, we're Jewish. And uh, in fact, where we were in New Hampshire, there's no real Hebrew school. So my mom's fluent in Hebrew, knows a lot about Judaism. So we weren't a particularly religious family, but my mom did run a sort of ad hoc Hebrew school out of our house. <laughs> Every Saturday, we'd have a group of the people, I don't know, probably eight or ten people come from the surrounding towns, kids, and come and, and study Hebrew, the language, and an emphasis on history and language. And so uh, that was um, a great sense of community, because obviously rural New Hampshire is not known for its Jews, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, community is what, I mean, I grew up Jewish, and that's basically the, you know, 
what Judaism is, is community. So you had this ad hoc Hebrew school. Did you celebrate the holidays? Did you have Jewish food traditions? Did you celebrate the holidays? Oftentimes we did. Oftentimes we also went down to Connecticut, saw my mother's family, and there we'd really have the typical, I would say, Jewish foods, brisket and matzo ball soup, and all the things that people picture when they think of Jewish food. At, at home here in New Hampshire, my mom didn't really do much Jewish cooking per se. I'd say our food culture was much more French, much more Italian growing up rather mm. than sort of Jewish. But, you know, we, we did all the traditional foods when it was time. And also we'd go to Israel a lot. In Israel, I fell in love with these tiny little, tiny, tiny little minuscule square crackers that are absolutely great in chicken soup and matzo ball soup and oh soup my with God. egg noodles. I, you know these? I just I went to Israel when I was 17 and we had those and I loved them and you know when I found them, the next time I found them I found them in Crete which is a suburb of Paris with a big huge Jewish community and they had a kosher butcher and a little kosher épicerie, a big little supermarket. And that's the next time I found them. They I know are exactly what they are. And they're fantastic. Fantastic. And something about them is they, as you probably noticed, when you put them in soup, they, they don't get mushy or soggy. They retain the crunch somehow. And uh, if, for anybody that's wondering what they're called in Hebrew, they're called shkede marak. I wish I knew what that means, or I wish I knew what they were called in English, but... um. <laughs> but that's Shkede Marak is what they're called in Hebrew, and they are terrific. They're these great, they add this great crunch to any soup, and I just, I love them. But I can't find them much. I mean, they're hard to find. <laughs> oh, yeah, gosh. I wonder if I can order them online. I'm going to see if I can. And so you're growing up, well, already you were saying there was a lot of French cooking and Italian cooking. Did, well, let me backpedal a bit. You went to Rome when you were in high school? Yes, um, I spent part of high school in Rome, and we lived very centrally, uh, actually in what was the old Jewish ghetto, which is now, as you know, one of the sort of trendiest neighborhoods in Rome. And we lived right behind the back patio of the classic Roman Jewish restaurant, Dagigetto. And this is a restaurant that you know well that everybody who's been to Rome practically knows this restaurant. And it's a restaurant I'd been going to since I was four years old. So when we walked up to the apartment, I said, oh, my God, I feel at home. <laughs> I've loved that digetto <laughs> since I was a kid. And they specialize in both kinds of artichoke, in, in the deep-fried Roman Jewish artichoke and in the, mm. in the boiled with olive oil and lemon Roman artichoke, the, the non-Jewish Roman artichoke. And then, of course, all the fried salt cod and the anchovy. Yeah, and, and carchofi alla Judea. Uh, alla Judea, yeah, and then carciofi yeah. alla Romana is the just the Roman artichoke. See, I've eaten a piperno in the Jewish ghetto. Yes, oh, fantastic. That's a famous <laughs> restaurant. There's, there's so many restaurants around there, it's amazing. It's a tiny area geographically, mm -hmm. but there's piperno and there's the famous restaurant Vecchia Roma, where you look in and in the lobby is all of these wonderful classic waiters with the white coat and the gloves and they're serving all of those super sort of cold or room temperature dishes out of those big trays, you know, and, and they, they do that sort of all lined up the cold eggplant and all of that stuff, the artichokes, the trays, and they assemble it there. I, I love how much waiters in Rome care about what they're doing. Okay, so I did find on the internet some of the episodes of the food show that you did. And I listened to the one that you did with Elizabeth Minkilly, who is a friend of mine. I know her. I think everyone does. And she's an American food writer who lives in Rome. And she said, in Italy, everybody starts out the day talking about what they're going to have for lunch. And 
This made me laugh because when I lived in Milan, I worked in an old millinery studio. And on any day, there were three or four older women who worked there making hats. And they would show up and they would arrive. They would put on their aprons to get to work. And it was before cell phones. They would take turns as soon as they showed up at like nine in the morning. They would take turns using the telephone to call the different members of their family to decide who was doing what for lunch. You're bringing the bread, I'll pick up this on my way home, you bring the pasta, whatever. And one thing you learn when you live in places like this is that from place to place, whether it's going, you know, living in France, then living in Italy, then living in Israel, that it's more than just the food and the dishes. It's the way people eat, the way people approach mealtime, the way they celebrate things. And you must have noticed this as well. And I mean, when you were in Rome, and thinking of you in Rome as a high school student, did you ever see Roma, Fellini's Roma? Yes. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was preparing for today's episode, is this scene of this young man walking through the piazza in Rome, and all of the restaurants, it's in the summer, and there's tables in front of all the restaurants, and it's packed with people, and they're all eating pasta, which is one of the best scenes in any movie ever, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you, as a young man, noticed this as well, that it wasn't just the food, but it's the way each culture approaches food and thinks about food and organizes mealtimes. How did this impact you as a high school student? One thing I was struck by was that not just everybody's parents knew how to cook, but all of my friends knew how to cook. And mm. that was very different from the States. I was struck that, you know, my 15-year-old friend Nicolò would, would know how to make a really good carbonara, you know. And it was just, it was natural. All of my friends knew how to cook. And that was one thing that was a big difference. Also, just the seriousness with which meals were approached. I'd go out to my friend Vincenzo lived sort of way outside of Rome, and it, it took forever to get there. But uh, when I'd go to his house to study biology, there would be a long lunch break, and the lunch break would include um, many courses of, you know, fresh pasta and great meat course and all of this, which was totally normal. It would never be, let's grab a roast beef sandwich standing at the counter, you know, in the kitchen, right. and, and let's eat as quickly as possible so we can get back. There's was, there was much more expansion of time when it had to do with meals, when it had to do with sitting and talking. And of course, the stereotypical thing is in America, you know, everybody has to, you know, get right back to work. How quickly can we do this and get back to the office? And, you know, I'm all for working hard and productivity and all that. But it is pretty wonderful to sit down and actually focus on the bounty that you have before you and talk with your friends and get to know each other a little bit. Yeah, that was striking. Even I remember later on, I was in New Orleans and a couple people who I hadn't seen since high school in Rome said, oh, yeah, we're road tripping through the States. We'll be in New so I said, come over, you know, welcome to stay with me. So they show up and we went to the market and got great, as you know, in the Gulf, mm -hmm. there's wonderful shrimp. So we, we got huge batches of great fresh Gulf shrimp and we were coming home to make a pasta. And it was just, these aren't foodies or gourmands particularly at all, but the pasta they made was absolutely world class. And it, uh, it reminded me how much Italians of all ages really care about what they're doing and really know what they're doing. And it was a, just a tremendous 
evening and I was just thinking to myself, this is just so great because so many of my friends in the States, you know, like going out to restaurants and all that, but it's different being in the kitchen and it's much more intimate when you're cooking around the stove together and you're having a drink of wine or a cocktail together and you can sit down and, and really talk. I think it's much different than being in a restaurant. There's something to be said for staying in and doing it yourself and exploring the kitchen together. Well, I've actually noticed that the longer I've lived in Europe, that when I go back to the States, I meet friends in restaurants. And I remember one time, God, decades ago, we met up with my old grade school best friend and we said, well, why don't we all get together in one of our houses and cook? And her and her then husband looked at us like we were insane. It was, well, we'll meet up at a restaurant. In Europe, you more than likely are going to be invited into someone's home or invite people to your home. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you, do you find that as well? That um, Because I don't live in the States, so I only go back and visit once in a while. But you that lives there, do you find that difference as well? You know, I do, especially when you're getting to know someone, there's this trepidation. But then I have to say, in, in New Orleans, which is such a food-centric mm-hmm. city, like Rome is in a lot of ways, people are very proud to show how well they can cook. And oh. so, they, <laughs> so they really want to invite you in. And New Orleans, it's in the South, but it's not exactly, as you know, it's not really a southern city per se it's kind of its own thing and there's a sense of pride that people have in the kitchen they really want to show what they can muster up in the kitchen and so being invited to house gatherings there is much more common than in other parts of america i would say but yes in general Hmm. in general people love restaurants i love restaurants too but it's it's different when you're around a big group of strangers and you know you're dealing with waiters and ordering and menus and all of that it's it's very different sometimes it takes a little longer to cut through the pleasantries and really get to the meat of the conversation when you're in someone's house i think something lends itself to diving right in at least i try to i i, I don't like fluff yeah. and pleasantries and clichés as you know that's something i try to stay away from <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I was curious, actually, too, was about how you saw New Orleans versus Rome, because they are two incredible cities, very historic cities, but they're also big, huge food cities. So I think you kind of answered it. I mean, it's completely different, too, I imagine. Completely different, but the emphasis on gathering eating together, big restaurant culture and also big cooking at home culture that that you don't find Mm -hmm. in a lot of parts of of America or maybe even as much in in Milan. I know Milan's a wonderful city, but they're not maybe as quite as passionate, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm assuming that it's different because I've only been to Rome just for like a long weekend. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, I didn't meet up with people there. In fact, at that time, I didn't even know anybody in Rome. (laughs) So now I know Elizabeth. (laughs) Now you know Elizabeth, yeah. Well, maybe we'll, either you and I will hang out and she not, we'll hang out with Elizabeth over in Rome. Oh God, I'd love to go back to Rome. It's been a long time. So, okay, a little shifting gears here. On your episode of the food show, you made the comment about cellists about the fact that whenever there's a buffet and the orchestra plays afterwards you'll always find the cellists gathered around the buffet the food table why (laughs) i mean i just loved that but it was funny how you saw cellists as particularly gourmand i guess there is something about it that (laughs) it applies everywhere in the world and uh, everywhere you go the first of all cellists tend to be as a group of people very social very friendly they congregate together. You don't ever see a bunch of violinists congregating together. Uh, you don't see a bunch of uh, trombone players, maybe, but, uh, you know, they stick to themselves, the brass players. But cellists really are wonderfully social people and generally rather nice people compared to a lot of other classical instruments. And I really mean it. <laughs> 
And I remember when I was in Rome, my teacher at the time was principal cello of the wonderful Italian chamber ensemble I Musici, and he was a great old Italian master, originally from Catania, from Sicily. And he told me at the time, he said, you know, cellists really love food and drink more than all the other instruments. And I can't really explain why, but it just is. And it's true, ever since then, when I was studying with him when I was 14, 15 years old, I've noticed all over the world that there's something about the cello. There's a congeniality and a collegiality and a sort of uh, warm feeling with cellists where you'll always find them together and social and some of my best friends uh, are cellists and have been since high school or even earlier. And it was funny when Francesco Strano, my teacher in Rome, confirmed that to me he was talking about the great bounties of seafood that he finds in Sicily, where he was <laughs> from. And he said, you always find cellists there together. And he's right. He's right. He, he died recently, and I, I think of him a lot. And his wisdom, in addition to that, his, um, his musical wisdom as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still eating Gougere. Me too. Um, I have to say, my, mine are absolutely delicious. They're probably flatter than they should be. But look, see this one? I mean, it looks terrific, yeah? Is it too yeah. flat? I find it wonderful. Oh, they're really very good. Okay, Daniel, tell me about the gourmet cellist and how did a musician become the host of a food show? <laughs> There was a wonderful show on the radio in New Orleans called The Food Show. And when I was first becoming acquainted with the food scene in New Orleans, I was browsing around a bookstore, and I found a great cookbook called Tom Fitzmorris's New Orleans Food. And I thought, yeah, it looks good. I'll pick up this cookbook, see what this is all about. So I got the book, and it was great. I started making recipes out of it. And Tom Fitzmorris is a great cookbook author and radio host, and nationally known, not just known in New Orleans. And so it said, yeah, catch him on the radio six days a week from three till six. Imagine that. Six days a week for three hmm. hours of live radio, all talking wow. about food. This is not like some shows you can find on NPR, which are wonderful, but that's an hour a week and that's heavily edited and put together. This was three hours a day of live commercial radio, talk radio, uh, all about food, meaning restaurants, recipes, anything. It oh, could be Daniel, anything. we need... That's the kind of talk radio the world needs more of. We'd be. I we'd be could not happier. agree more. We would be. Get, we would get along better. <laughs> Completely. And he said, "I have one rule on here. We don't talk about politics or world events at all." He said, "You know, I love if you want to talk about music. You know, that's fine. We talk about music a lot, as, as you'll see. But he said this is a show about pleasure, and that's all I want it to be about. So nice." So I started calling into the show because it was a call-in show just to say, hey, Tom, where should I go get trout amandine or something, some <laughs> dish like that. And, uh, and so he got to know me a bit and we got to know each other over the phone, over the airwaves. And he came up with the name for me because I was calling enough and he liked chatting with me and he was a big music fan. He came up with the name Daniel the Gourmet Cellist. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, cool. Okay, so every time I'd call his producer with Tom Hudus, and he goes, it's Daniel, the gourmet cellist. And it was, <laughs> it was great. And sometimes we talked for two minutes, sometimes, you know, 15, 20 minutes on the line. And so one day I ran into him. I was uh, coming out of a concert in my tails and had my cello with me. And he didn't know what I looked like, um, but he was a big symphony fan. And so I said, hey, Tom, it's me. It's the gourmet cellist. And, and he said, oh, great. You know, how are you? And we had a nice chat. And he said, hey, uh, you have a good voice and you know a lot about food. Why don't you host a show in two weeks? I'm going to be gone. So I said, uh, okay. I said, you know, maybe those oh, things are true, wow. but I don't know anything about talk radio, uh, Tom. I, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I started fumbling and stumbling around. I said, I don't know anything about talk radio, how to do it. He said, it's fine. He said, our producer's great. He'll guide you through it. And uh, hopefully you'll have callers and you know, just go in and have a good time. So it turned out really well. 
And after the first day, I remember the station head came up to me. She had, you know, been tuning in and out. So she says, how long have you been in radio? I said, three hours. (laughs) (laughs) She said, it's great. It's great. So it turned out really well. And people actually were very receptive. They didn't think I was trying to copy him or do it all like him. And when he heard that I, I was having Jacques Pepin on, he said, oh, really? You're trying to, you know, really show me up, aren't you? <laughs> but I had uh, Jacques Pepin and, and Ming Tsai and lots of other cool people on for interviews. But it was really fun because something about the live talk radio aspect of it is so interesting because there can't be a second that goes by that you're not talking. And on a podcast, of course, if there's a second that goes by or on public radio, you know, all that's edited out. But <laughs> on live talk radio, it was like, wow, if no one calls, I better have something to say or some funny story to <laughs> to tell. Oh, that's but true. Last thing I'll say about that is that what I discovered was that A, I love talking to people on a recorded format, and B, my favorite part of doing that show was the interview part, but I didn't want to do only chefs, which is why I had the idea for my podcast, Talking Beats, because I love talking to people and asking questions. I just didn't want it to be limited to chefs and food, so that's where that sort of idea came from. Well, I was curious about Talking Beats because when I came up with the idea for this podcast, there's so many so many podcasts, probably almost all food podcasts that exist, and there are some fantastic ones, all interview food people. So they're interviewing restaurateurs or chefs or food producers or food artisans or farmers. And I mean, you, for example, as a guest, there are so many people that have nothing professionally to do with food that have had incredible experiences, have a lot of knowledge, have a lot of passion, have a lot to say, and maybe from a unique, because they're not food professionals, um, maybe their viewpoint is coming from a completely different angle, which is why, I mean, the conversations are fascinating. And I'm assuming that this is kind of what's behind Talking Beats as well. I mean, how did you come up with your concept and how do you decide who to have on as guests? That's a good question. I knew that I wanted a show where I would talk to all different kinds of people. I thought there has to be some sort of a tie-in, but I mean, sort of, there had been a precedent for a general interview show. There were lots of those, but I thought since my background is music and since my life has been in music and everybody loves music and the two things everybody loves, as we all know, are music and food, I felt, well, if I can use music as a tie-in and sort of unite as best I can physics to music or even politics to music or there's always some tie-in that music can make to act as a sort of through line I thought that that might be interesting so that's where the concept came from I was talking to my brother I couldn't think of a name and I told him about the show he says so what do you do I said well we talk blah 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 I explained and he said and how does music play a role I explained he said okay so you're talking I said yes and he said about music yes beats there you go there's your title I thought perfect (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely right. It rolls off the tongue. Now, in terms of the guests, I just want to have a variety of people. Sometimes people write me to say, you don't have enough of the hard sciences. And someone else is writing and say, "Uh, it's gotten too serious, too much doom and gloom. Can you have, you know, someone talking about (laughs) cookies or something? (laughs) So I like a balance. It's not a political show, although there have been politicians on. There have been people from sort of across the spectrum. You've had people... Mm -hmm. You know, all the way from David Frum and Bill Crystal to way left of center. I 
like to hear from different people. I think it's very interesting. The diversity of guests, I think, and, you know, I don't shy away from hearing people's political opinions. It's not a political show, but if I'm talking to Heidi Heitkamp, who is a U.S. senator, I certainly want to hear what she has to say about politics in addition to music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to pretend that she doesn't know anything about politics because what a fount of mm -hmm. wisdom she is. So I like a variety. I definitely love one thing that fascinates me particularly are physicists. I love talking to physicists. I've had on most of the, well, not most, but I have on a number of the most famous physicists, and they're just amazingly interesting people because they can talk big picture and small picture and sort of zoom in and out really easily, and, and I love that. But someone like Walter Isaacson is also great because he brings such a diverse range of knowledge and passions to any topic that he covers. And he was the very first episode, Walter was, and we did hmm. Little Da Vinci, a little Ben Franklin, and little Einstein. He knows so much about all of these figures that he can just sort of pivot and somehow connect it all together. Uh, yeah, I listened to a more recent podcast episode with a physicist, mm. and it was, it was fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, food and music. You do events that bring together parallels of food and music. So, I want to talk about that, the parallels between food and music. But first, tell me more concretely about these events that you put together. It all started in New Orleans. I was talking with my friend Dan Davis, who's the sommelier of Commander's Palace, which, as you know, is a great old, old restaurant in New Orleans. But it's, um, it's not one of those old restaurants that's sort of frozen in time. They always evolve, and so it kind of has a modernistic bent to it. It's not super old school. But I was chatting with him, and I was saying, you know, there's so many parallels, you know, wine and music and all of this. And my friend Fritz Dolezal, who was a cellist in the Vienna Phil, had a group where they would do wine tastings and play music at the same time. And hmm. uh, I thought, this is a great, great idea. So I said to Dan, I said, you know, is there any way Commander's Palace would be interested? So we had a meeting with Chef Tori McPhail at the time, and we decided to put together a, a big evening, a special menu, a special wines, and in between. So not while they were eating and drinking, but in between courses, play. So it was a real performance for, you know, 10 minutes or 12 minutes, not overload. And then you'd have another course and then hear some more music and went like that down the line. And it was just a, an amazing way for people to, I would say, experience music and food and wine in a new way. Because it's not like you were hearing background music at a nice dinner. You were really sort of experiencing the music up close in a room. They had built a little stage in this dining room at Commander's Palace. Hmm. Uh, and it's so fun to talk to people about food and music and wine because they all go together so well, especially when you're dealing with experts like that. And so we realize, yeah, there, there's really something here. So events like that are great. I love working with sommeliers or working with wine people or working with, with chefs because it's not like you can say, well, this is some big aggressive Bordeaux, okay, so now we're going to play some big aggressive piece of French music. I mean, it's not that, <laughs> you know. Well, that's what I was wondering, if you coordinated the music with the meal. We, we coordinate in the sense that I like to think, you know, something light and springy to start out with in terms of the music. And then, so it, it does, in that sense, sort of parallel. And it is always fun if you have some obvious connection, if you're by chance serving uh, a dish that has trout in it, if you by chance could have five musicians there 
to play part of Schubert's Trout Quintet, that would be wonderful. That would be absolutely wonderful. Although the thing for that is you need a piano, violin, viola, cello, bass. So that's a lot of stuff, you know, to get a piano in there and four string players. Okay, that's a little. But it's fun to ex- explore what kind of connections there are. I, I was just out in, in California. I think you saw I was, I was visiting a couple of friends and I was in Napa where my brother has a house over in Carneros and I was at Saintsbury Winery. And I brought my cello over there, impromptu, because our good friend is a head winemaker there. And I said, hey, um, here's some music. I'll, I'll play right now in the, in the garden. They had a table set up, and lots of people were tasting wine there. Took my cello, played some Bach, and these people were just, they were just beyond thrilled. And it was just an impromptu thing, but it was so much fun to just have the cello there and take it outside. And I don't bring any pretense with me. Uh, I try mm-hmm. to think of it as casually as possible. And uh, these people who didn't come from music, they come up to go to a great winery and taste some wine. They were absolutely thrilled. And the winery staff said to me afterwards, we've never seen our garden get so quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Because <laughs> I just stood there with mm-hmm. my tongue. and I said, now I will play for you some Bach. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if you've ever done a wine tasting, or I've done chocolate tastings, I've done cheese tastings, they do a progression. So you start with very light, and you kind of work your way up until you're going to bold and robust. So you could do the same with music, like a music tasting. Absolutely, and that's what we tried to do. And I think people who wouldn't necessarily buy a ticket to the symphony were crazy about that. And people who wouldn't necessarily buy a tasting menu at Commander's Palace, but would go for the music, came to that too. So it was interesting to see the overlap of people Hmm. who come. But I always say that music is so much about just getting people in the chair and then they'll like it. It's it's the invitation that's that's a difficult part. Here, you know, take a free ticket, please come. You know, and then they sit there, oh my God, this is great. Where's it been my whole life? But it's oftentimes once they hear it, they love it. Well, it's like food. You can sit in your living room and play music and enjoy it. Just like you can make a meal for yourself and serve it on a beautiful platter, you know, sit in your dining room or on your terrace and enjoy it by yourself. But once you invite people in, it's completely different with food and music, I'm assuming. It's it's about gathering. It's about sharing. It's about experiencing it together. It's about introducing people to new tastes, to new things. So there's a lot of parallel that I've been thinking about since you told me about this. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are parallels. And one thing I don't like is when you try to exaggerate the parallel and make too much of it. But on the other hand, there is something there. So it's worth exploring. And, and there's so many times that the experience is just a little different or a little surprising. And someone gets so much out of it. I remember Tom Fitzmorris, the, the restaurant critic and radio man was at this dinner. And he was absolutely floored by it. He said it was just such a great sort of multi-sensory experience. And, uh, and I love doing stuff like that. I hope that after things calm down a bit, I think hopefully you'll be able to do more of those. Although outdoor, like if there's a place that has good weather, then you can do that now and not have to worry about many of the COVID restrictions. Well, I think food and music, what you just said about it being a sensory experience, I mean, I call it sensual because it touches all of the senses. You can over-intellectualize. I mean, you can have people at your table or playing music for them and say, now listen to this and, and talk about the technicalities and here's how you make it and here's what you do and this is the music. But when you just kind of let them experience it on all sensory levels, I mean, it's exactly the same, music and food, and people experience it and appreciate it a lot more. Exactly. Could not agree more. Yep. So it sounds like it all goes together. Your experience is traveling around the world, living in different cultures, your evolution with your own music and with food. It kind of all goes together to kind of create who you are now. And it kind of sounds like it all intertwines into almost one thing. Does that make sense? I will say that there was a great conductor 
named Arturo Toscanini, and he always talked about how everything you do comes out in the music you make. Every book you read, every conversation you have, is it all goes in there somehow. And I think it's the same with you know life experiences. I mean, it's the same when I make pasta. I think of age four rolling out the gnocchi with margherita, or I'd think of some early experiences I'd have, and it all goes together. And the biggest thing for me is how much can I learn and appreciate and how much can I grow in terms of curiosity? You know, how much can I learn from people around me? How much can I learn from a friend in Shanghai or a friend in some city in Italy or something like that? And the goal is to, I think for me, keep making great music, hopefully, and keep learning about food and different cultures and, and see what kind of parallels and connections one can make. Because that's, to me, what, what makes life so interesting is the, the variety and, and, the, and the lack of monotony. For me, I try to avoid monotony in music and food and, and people. I love variety. I guess that through all of that, you kind of have developed traditions in how you have people in your home, how you entertain, how you feed people. There's kind of a basic tradition that you've picked up along the way. It sounds more European then than anything else, but you just bring in all of these different cultures. Do you do anything pure? I mean, do you say, well, for this holiday, I'm going to do purely, you know, Jewish or purely Italian, or, or do you kind of mix and match? Because I know that when I lived outside of Paris, I got to be friends with a woman who was family Jewish from North Africa. She said, oh, your Ashkenazi food is just, you know, I can't handle it. And she taught me a lot of the North African. They serve on Rosh Hashanah. They serve lamb with honey and, and fruit. And so I kind of have incorporated that into my Rosh Hashanah dinners. Do you just try everything or do you have certain traditions that you stick with? I like trying everything, although sometimes I get caught up in the tradition. One tradition I have is on Christmas Eve, I always make this enormous... Jewish brisket because all my friends usually are out celebrating Christmas with their families. So <laughs> so I, I buy the biggest brisket I can find and I make a Jewish brisket and I, I serve it and usually have a lot of leftovers, but I have friends over. So, you know, it's um, this is my answer to Christmas is to make this Jewish brisket. And... <laughs> And I, I do a composite recipe of Uncle Nahum and then Arthur Schwartz. Arthur Schwartz has a great recipe that has basically nothing in it but a lot of salt, a lot of pepper, and tons and tons and tons of onions. And uh, it's a great brisket, and I love doing that. <gasps> mm. When we have Passover, when, growing up, my mom would always make haroset, which is the bitter root. She'd make one from Tunisia, one from mm. Italy, one from all over the world, and lots of different kinds of haroset uh, to show how diverse Jewish cooking was, that, you know, making a... A Moroccan had nothing to do with making a Russian version, but they represented the same thing. Right. But they were both just wonderfully tasty. And I'm always looking for new ways to explore traditions and shake it up a bit. There's a great quote from the composer Mahler, who probably people are familiar with Mahler's symphonies, and he was an Austrian Jewish composer, lived from 1860 to 1911, and a really groundbreaking composer. And Mahler said that tradition is keeping the flame, not worshiping the ashes. And oh. to me, that's just a perfect encapsulation of, of everything I try to do, a blend of old and new and keeping the, the passion and keeping that lineage of the tradition, but not being stuck in a time capsule. There has to be constantly adapting to keep itself fresh and relevant, which is an overused word, but it does have to feel relevant to today, but still maintain that connection to the past. And with that, I think it's a good note to end on. 
No pun intended. And this was fantastic, and I could sit and talk to you for another six hours. There's just so much to discover and talk about. Thank you so much for doing this with me, and I want to see how your second batch of Gougère come out. <laughs> I will send you a picture, and I thank you so much. This was a great pleasure, and I hope we can do it again maybe in person sometime. Oh, great. Oh, no, I expect you to come visit in Chinon at least. And if you need help with anything from pie crust to anything else, just give me a buzz. You know where to find me. <laughs> I'll do it. I'm going to need a lot of... I always need help. Yeah. <laughs> okay, definitely. You know where to find me. So everyone listen to Talking Beats, his podcast. It's become one of my fetish podcasts to listen to when I'm making jam. So you'll definitely have to discover it. And thank you very much, Daniel. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.